Hi folks, this is Jack Spierka with another edition of the Survival Podcast. As always, one man's view of the changing world, the changing times, and the things we can all do to live a better life. If times get tough, or even if they don't. Today is Wednesday, January the 3rd, 2018. This is episode 2138, 2138 of the Survival Podcast. I think I told you yesterday we were at 2136. We really weren't. We were at 2137, so I've corrected all that. And it is a Wednesday. Wednesday is interview day, and we are supposed to have a really awesome interview today. And guess what? We don't have it. We don't have it because our guest, who will be Ryan Mitchell, who is going to be talking about tiny houses, etc., uh, and using them as a stepping stone rather than a permanent residence into a life of independence, is not available today. And he has made a request. He's made a request that we reschedule him for tomorrow. And, of course, being reasonable human beings, Dorothy and I said, Sure, we can do that. That's the flexibility of working for yourself and not having to check with 20 people before you make a decision. And I just said, you know, it's real simple. I'll just do the listener call show that usually goes on Thursday, on Wednesday, and we'll do Ryan's interview on uh, Thursday. And then we'll have expert counsel Q&A if the pikers get off the pikers list, because I only have one answer right now from them, but I got a confirmation of a bunch of stuff coming in, so we should have expert counsel show Friday, and we will be back to, what do you call that? Regularly scheduled programming, ladies and gentlemen, as of the end of this week. So that'll be cool. I do think we are going to have like a brand new monthly segment. Like I think we're going to go to like monthly. We probably have three Just Jack Tuesday shows. And the first uh, Tuesday of each month, Stephen Harris and Jack Spear are talking about bug out trailers until we work through that awesome list of stuff. Uh, that could go on into June, I'm telling you. And I think it'll be a really cool series, and it'll break things up and make things new. I want a lot of new content coming out in 2018. I don't want to be recycling stuff over and over. That's what Rewind shows are for, to bring back that practical information from the past that is the basics so we can continue in our evolution together at TSP. On that note, i got a bunch of great calls today. Here's what we're going to talk about. Uh, a question on public food forests and community service... And being a heathen, really like this call, and a little question we might pose to our expert counsel as well. Uh, thoughts on lethal force and what's called duty of retreat. And I think it may be a misunderstanding, but I'm going to cover my ass hard with saying you need to check with your state and talk to a lawyer when I cover this one. Pulling kids out of school and limitations on what parents as teachers can do and more. Some thoughts on that. Why it may not be the big... A uh, problem that a lot of people anticipate it being. Uh, the economics of Uber by an Uber Eats driver, and I have in the show notes today, hashtag work the system. So even though this is going to be specific to Uber, I'm going to talk about how it applies to life. And it also will back me up on what I told you when we talked about Uber with a hit piece that I covered last month at the end of the year. Uh, the parenting of young children in the modern age. This is an interesting and challenging question. As I said yesterday on the interview with Stephen Harris about bug out trailers, you guys challenge us as, as teachers, as hosts. Uh, not just me, but the whole expert council. And that's a big difference between the modern education system and what we do here from an educational standpoint. We like being challenged. This is a challenging question. I look forward to trying to answer it as best I can for you. Question on water storage beyond soda bottles in cold climates. Um, building an indoor quail aviary, 
And thoughts on a thing called the Hatfield shotgun, like the Hatfields and McCoys, the Hatfield shotgun. I actually like this little gun, or should say guns, as there's a few different options, and we'll talk about it and some modifications people are doing with the single-shot version of it. All of that and more in just a bit. Before we do that, you know what we need to do. We need to hear from our two sponsors of the day. Sponsor of the day number one today, westernbotanicals.com. I mean... I am so grateful to have Western Botanicals as a sponsor, and a sponsor for like eight years now. Um, Western Botanicals has everything you can need from an herbal remedy standpoint, and they also have all the raw herbs you need and things like that. And they have real people that really care about you that will answer the phone and help you. Now, one thing that when I say that, occasionally I get an email about this, and I wanted to cover it today. I'll get an email and say, well, I called Western Botanicals and said my head hurts. What do I buy? And they said they can't help me by telling me exactly what to buy. Oh, that's not because they won't do it. That's not because they're not real people that really don't care about you. That is due to what we call the Department of Making You Sad, the government that says, well, you, you, you can't sell herbal supplements that way. But if you call with questions about specific things or what you need or how to order or to get your free membership from them, if you're an MSB member, all that good stuff, they will help you. They will help you in spades. Uh, so check them out today at westernbotanicals.com. If it's herbal and you need it, it's legal in the United States, you'll find it. And it's all either wild-crafted or organically grown. Next up today, Self-Reliance Magazine. I love Self-Reliance Magazine. It is the modern uh, how-to-be-self-sufficient-and-independent magazine available both online, actually online via Kindle and via a hard copy quarterly publication brought to you by the, the family of David Duffy, the guy that brought you backwards home for over 20 years. Uh, his daughter has taken on the mantra of the family and marching forward with that. Many of the great authors that were part of Backwoods Home are now calling Self-Reliance Magazine their home, but there's a lot of really new great stuff. I love the stuff on converting sheds into small houses. That series has been blowing me away with possibilities. It's a great magazine, and MSB members, what do you guys get? You guys get a discount on Self-Reliance Magazine, so check it out, self-reliance.com. And before we get into the show today, let's take a look at the year 85. That's where we were the last episode with Legislating Morality. We now have another segment for the year 85 from David Verne, Dacian Raids, and another triumph. The tribes of Dacia, or Dacia, I'm not sure how you say that. I'm going to say Dacia. This is what it looks more like to me. Uh, Modern-day Romania have never posed a serious threat to Rome and only engaged in small-scale raiding. This year, the Dacian king, Dura, abdicates in favor of his nephew, Del Salbius, Del Salvi has quickly assembled a large army from the newly united tribes and crossed the Danube River in the Roman province of Mosia. Taking Roman garrisons completely by surprise in the ensuing chaos, the local region fell back and provincial governor was killed. Domitian, who is the emperor of Rome at this time, immediately led reinforcements from Italy, including units of the Praetorian Guard. But by the time he arrived, the Dacians had withdrawn across the Danube, laden down with loot and prisoners. Domitian returned to Rome and left the Praetorian prefect Cornelius Fucius in command of the Roman army in Mosia. When Domitian arrived at Rome, he celebrated a triumph for having successfully driving the Dacians out of Roman territory. Uh, the war was far from over, though, and this triumph would soon turn into a political wound that refused to heal. As Fusius decided to lead the army in Adacia to destroy the raiding force, Fusius didn't realize that the normally squabbling tribes had united, and Rome would soon suffer the worst military disaster since three legions were wiped out in the Tittelberg Forest. My take by David Fern, 
Verne. The Dacians were much different than the disorganized Germanic tribes that the Romans were used to fighting. Their nobility was fluent in Latin and Greek, and they were organized under one ruler. They also controlled rich gold, silver, and iron mines. Their city planning was much more advanced than most barbarian tribes, and their capital had aqueducts and pipe systems copied from the Romans. You know, it was interesting when I read that last sentence, copied from the Romans, as I was reading the entire segment and seeing the direction it was going, I was thinking to myself, Romania is a lot closer to the Roman Empire core than Germania. And I bet you, I just bet you, the Romans are fighting people a lot like themselves, and that is going to be a differentiator here. But once again, Domitian gives me this vision of George Bush Jr. on an aircraft carrier with a banner overhead that says Mission Accomplished. And I don't want to get political about that because I know what they meant versus what it was taken to mean. But when you market something, which is when you put up a big sign, whether you're a president or a country or a company, you're marketing. And when you market something, it doesn't matter what you meant. It matters what the perception of it is to the people you're marketing to. And as we are still deeply mired in Iraq and Afghanistan and other parts of the Middle East, where I think we should be out of, and we have had since George Bush now two more presidents, one who was two terms and we're still there, that banner looks awful foolish. But unlike modern-day republics where a president, which would be the equivalent of the emperor in the day, with a lot of differences, don't go getting bogged down in that, um, they get to go up for election every four years, and then if they go for eight, they go away and a new one comes. So when that's not the case, and one has claimed something they haven't done, you can imagine where it might lead, especially if you paid attention to the history segments, especially in Rome up till now, Domitian's future doesn't look good. Just going to say, it doesn't look good. I would not want to be in this dude's shoes in the coming years. He's got a while to go, but you know where this will end, don't you? History doesn't always repeat itself, but it often rhymes. Anyway, with that, let me uh, let you know something about MSB, and that is there's a sale going on right now, discount 20 bucks, and guess what? You get to keep that discount for as long as you stay an active member. That means when you renew, you'll renew at 30 bucks. Discount code 2018. Did a post about it today. It is available to new members and existing members whose current accounts have expired. Come on back and check it out. And I'll give you a quick announcement. I won't have this officially on the site until at least tomorrow, but I'm bringing on a a new sponsor and MSB discount member. Uh, both is what they will be. And the discount I got for MSB, if it's a service you want to use, will pay for your MSB member at this sale price not once, not twice, not three times, but four times over the next 12 months. The company's called ButcherBox. You can go ahead and check them out today and see if you're going to want a di the discount. I'm going to tell you what the discount's going to be. It's going to be, when you get your first order, 10 bucks off and free bacon. Yeah, free bacon is good shit, right? Okay, so you'll get your free bacon and your 10 bucks off. Your next month, you won't get free bacon anymore, but you will get another 10 bucks off. Now, 10 bucks off a month, if this is a service you want to use and you keep it for a year, is $120 on a $30 membership. 
That's one partner. Guys, when I say I make this thing profitable to be a member in, I'm not kidding. I'm not kidding. Butcher Box is fantastic. I've been back and forth with these guys for about a month to get you this deal. They wanted to do 10 bucks off a month for your first order. I'm like, they do that for everybody, right? And then they wanted to do, well, 10 bucks off a month for like the first year. I'm like, no, that's not how this works. You want access to my folks? We need to do this long term. So I have a hybrid deal with them. I'm, a, I'm a, taking them on as a sponsor, but I'm not taking money from them. I'm taking meat, right? I'm taking a box of meat a month as a, as a, uh, as a sponsorship payment, and then I got you guys this deal. And then I said, you know, we should do something for everybody, not just members, and here's what we got. Ten bucks off a month of free bacon on one order. So even if you're not MSB, you'll get that. But if you're MSB, you get it on a recurring basis. Again, $120 bucks. On a $30 membership in one year on one benefit, this is a good time to join the MSB. And if you want to pay in crypto, silver, whatever, instructions for all of that are in the post. It'll be linked today in the show notes, and it'll be the post that's straight just a little bit underneath this one for episode 2138. And before we go to the first call, reminder, where am I going to be the first week of February on the weekend? I'm going to be in New Hampshire As keynote speaker at Liberty Forum 2018, part of the Free State Project, you can get a great discount on tickets there, MSB or not. Please come see me. Please come hang out. I got some really cool stuff we'll be talking about, and you'll meet some of the coolest people, both speakers and just attendees, that you will ever meet in your life. If you've been to workshops here at my, uh, my farm, and you realize how transformational they are and the relationships that you form are more than just the event themselves, it's like that, but there's about a thousand people there in total, over the week, that are like you. Come on out. It's worth doing. Even New Hampshire in February. I think that March would be a better time for this, but uh, that's when they do it, so that's when I'm going. I'll be there. Hope to see you there, too. With that, let's go ahead and take our first call of the day. Today, this call is on public food forest, community service, being a heathen, and more. Um, and I just remind you, as if we play this call, if you want to make a call, Make your point up front, then give me your details, call from a quiet location, make sure you got some bars on the phone, do the call like you're about to hear, because this guy gets three things in and does a textbook, and you will probably hear yourself sooner or later on the air. Caller, take it away. Hello, Mr. Spirico. This is Chance Lunsford out of Pleasant Grove, Utah, and I have three things. I have a question, a comment, and a reminder. Item the first, the question. If you were wanting to see more of a like a food forest system installed in your city how would you suggest going about getting that done item the second the comment um i just wanted to let you know that your podcast has been very inspiring to me and one of the things i'm in the process of creating now here in pleasant grove utah is the hsb which clearly the name is modeled after the msb but it's the heathen support brigade and or excuse me, the Heathen Service Brigade. And what we do is we get together people who are not like the people that they're around. I'm around a lot of Mormons in Utah, and I'm not a Mormon, but I want to show them that I'm a good person to have as a neighbor and a friend. And so I get my fellow heathens, and we go out and do service projects. And then item the third, a reminder. I called in a while back with the question about what you'd do with 100 bucks, And I also threw out the suggestion that you might like to ask the expert counsel that same question to each of them to see what they might suggest and I heard that you were in search of some questions 
for the expert council, and I thought this might be a good time to pose that question to them. What would you do with a hundred bucks um, to get started in any of their different things, whether it's Patrick Gorman with the knives or, you know, et cetera. So anyway, Jack, I appreciate everything that you do. Look forward to um, hearing your answers if I get the chance, and if not, just keep up the good work, and I'll be tuning in every day. Thanks a lot, Jack. See you. Okay, so let's start out with the food forest thing and permaculture as a whole and having more of it in your city. Now, the, the number one way that people up till now have taken to getting stuff like this done is to go the route of working with government to get a park either established or converted into something with a bunch of edibles in it. I love this idea. I find it to be tediously slow rife with problems, and almost, in most cases, with a few exceptions across the country, impossible to actually do the right way. You can get a government with lots of freaking work to do landscaping with fruit in a park. That's about it. It's a good step in the right direction. I'm okay with it. And if you want to do it, fine. I worked on a project as part of a design team with Dave Jackie up in Helena, Montana, to build the second ever public food forest in the country, with the first one being, I believe, in Washington. Washington State, that is. And it's being built slowly. I did that project like three years ago, maybe four, and it still ain't really done yet and I don't mean like it ain't grown out yet I mean like it's not done yet it's a one and a half acre site I could get a group of TSPers that are amateurs together in materials and we could have put that thing in in a weekend while we drank beer and got drunk and they're still dicking with it and the reason was there's like nine stakeholders and people want this and people want that and they want a park for kids to it's an acre and a half they want a park for kids to play in they want a place for people to wait for the bus stop they want a shed they want solar power they said holy shit like let's just mulch the shit out of everything plant the shit out of everything put some irrigation in and then we can add to it but no no so i'm not exactly a fan of working with government So I would take one of two different approaches. One, I would look for someone with a large land holding who might be interested in creating some sort of a private experience and them investing their money or try to find a neighborhood where you can maybe get 20 or 30 neighbors who all live adjacent to each other to plant some stuff. Just do that. Out in the nature strip, as they call it overseas, which is basically that little strip between the sidewalk and the road, or just in the front yard, maybe if everybody plants a tr one fruit tree, maybe doing a little coordination, like go around and talk to people as part of your heathen brigade, which I think is awesome and we'll get to next. That could be a project for you. Because here's what I, I – getting – if you've had a neighborhood area well, let's say 50 houses where you talk to the homeowners, and you said – I need to get you know, 20, 30, 40 of you guys to, to get on board with this. And Let's say you even said, like, if you guys will buy the trees and the bushes, we'll tell you what the plant will come plant it for you. That might seem daunting. I'll tell you what, it's a hell of a lot easier than getting through a city council and then this group and, that, and all this other shit. And if you went through 100 and got 50 to do it, even if they weren't all adjacent, you're going you're gonna to completely create a new ecosystem. 
and you're going to create two different new ecosystems. The one everybody's thinking of, the bio-ecosystem of nature. You've got some, you know, if you perennial plants, uh, perennial herbs, perennial flowers, a bush, a tree, a vine. And, I mean, it doesn't have to be a lot. If you got individual homeowners to commit, let's say, a hundred bucks, and don't try to do food forestry where we've got support species and just, you know, maybe there's a locust tree here and there or something like that for support. But, you know, your support could be things like autumn olive that has a nitrogen fixation but an edible yield. And talk, well, what do you like to eat? And then if you have two neighbors that are relatively close and both of them want apples, make sure you have some timing in there where the apples work together. And that's the service that you're providing, uh, which is planting and, 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 you know, telling them when to water, how to water, how to prune, stuff like that. So you, you get enough new plant life into a system. And you get flowering plants and you get timed out plants with different blooms and stuff like that. You're going to create this effect and this local bio micro ecosystem that everybody thinks about. You're going to create a different ecosystem, though. People are going to start talking to each other and bartering with each other, human component ecosystem. And, and I think that's probably, if I wanted to get more permaculture into a city, I'd pick out the right suburb with the right neighborhood Maybe even advertise, maybe just talk to a few people that know their neighbors and just talk about how this could be done. You might even then be able to reach out to some nonprofits or something like that or even set up one of your own that people might support and say, you know, for every hundred dollars you put into your landscape, we match 20. You know, that starts to get people's attention. And then you say, like, this is what we can do. And, you know, you could make that even a business, but then you got to charge an overage and everything. If you're doing this heathen thing, which I think is awesome, um, then, you know, that could be your service to your community. And if you ever did want to turn it into a business, having it as an example first. Because we can either keep trying to develop permaculture communities or we can transform communities into permaculture communities. And I think the second one's actually easier. And if there's one person that doesn't want to participate in the neighborhood, that's fine. Shit will grow up all around them. Stay away from HOAs in this. Okay. Next up, um, this Heathen Brigade thing. And, and I, I wanted to say something on behalf of uh, Latter-day Saints, uh, the Mormons as they're also known, because I want to make sure that I'm, I, I, I say the right things about people at times when it comes up. If I could buy into the belief system, I would, I would convert to Mormonism tomorrow from the way that I've seen the people in that faith be as far as the human beings they are and they become and their service to their community. And the reason I bring it up here is because you said you want to show them that you guys are great people even though you're not Mormons. I don't think you have to. I think you should, but I don't think you have to. That one of the things I've loved about all of the Mormons I've met in my life is how accepting they are of your beliefs or non-beliefs. And your traditions or your non-traditions. Uh, I had to go to a business thing in, in Salt Lake City years and years ago, uh, before I even started TSP. And I'm a, I was, I'm a coffee drinker a little bit now, but I was a coffee drinker heavily back then. And I was like, there'll be no coffee here. And it turned out, and, and one girl says to me, well, can we do anything for you? And I said, I doubt, doubt you could do this, but I, I'd really like a cup of coffee. She says, we went out and bought a coffee maker and coffee today, and I made coffee, but I don't know if it's right because I never made coffee before in my life because this whole company was very, very Mormon-centric. And I'm like, why did you do that? She goes, we knew you guys were coming and that you might want coffee. 
So they went out of their way to do something for me that they are particularly not supposed to do for themselves. So let me just say, I, I love that. I love your idea. On the $100 question, I remember it, and I remember why I didn't do it. I thought it was like, I only have 100 bucks. How do I get started in survival? 100 bucks, that's all you got? Put it in the bank, right? And save up your money. If you only have 100 bucks, but kind of this like, well, what would you do with 100 bucks niche by niche? Maybe we'll put together a whole expert counsel show on just that. I'll see what I can do in the future. Anyway, good call. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Scott in Kansas. My question is, what are the rules of engagement for a good guy with a gun? Details. Black Friday weekend, a guy went into Costco in Kansas City waving a gun and shouting. An off-duty Leo was checking out and told him to drop the gun and then shot him. But in that circumstance, if the Leo wasn't there, when could a good guy with a gun engage him? Does he have to shoot first? Um, most states have a retreat first built into their laws. Um, I'd like your feedback on that. Thank you. Okay. I'm not a lawyer. I don't pretend to be one on TV. And anything I say right now should not be construed as legal advice, only a starting point to find out exactly how things work out in your state. But I will explain things as I understand them. So a state that has something like a duty of retreat would be something like this. I am in a store and you start ranting and raving like you want to beat my ass. You don't have a gun. You don't have a knife. You're not threatening to hurt anybody else. Right, You're not charging me with a baseball bat, and I'm armed, legally. It is my duty in that state to attempt to remove myself from the situation. I don't have the right, as an armed citizen, to stand my ground and say, to hither thou shalt come and no further. I have to make some attempt to de-escalate the situation. Now let me say something. I am against that law because what's actually gone on and whether or not you can extricate or de-escalate is very subject to being there. Okay. However, I feel in that exact description, I should do everything I can to de-escalate it whether I'm armed or not prior to drawing a weapon. So if that situation were to take place... You throw your shit out there like you're going to kick my ass. I pull my gun out and tell you, calm the F down. Or I just simply say, hey, dude, you need to calm your shit down because I know I'm armed. And I stand in and I don't back down at all. And I hold my ground, okay? And then that escalates to a situation where I then need to use lethal force. I may be prosecuted under the law of that state. I also might not be. It will be subjective to every situation. because the, But the legal question will come up. Did I have the opportunity to de-escalate? Did I have the opportunity of retreat without endangering my life or the life of others and fail to do it? And again, I think that's highly subjective. And that's why I don't like the state having the power to prosecute underneath it. In a stand-your-ground state, which about half, a little less than half the states are, it works a bit differently. In, in those states, if you're being aggressive to me, I have no requirement to stand down. Now, I may actually create legal trouble for myself if I escalate the situation, but I have no duty to leave. I like that as a law because do I really have the ability to leave? If you're threatening to kick my ass and I turn my back, 
or I try to extricate myself and the situation I'm in puts me in a position of weakness where it gives you an opportunity to attack me, and the state's judging that subjectivity. But at least let's understand, in my understanding, that's the difference. In the, in the, the instance that you describe, to my knowledge, and I'm going to say this one more time, I am not a lawyer, and this would need to be checked at every level at every state, okay? When the man drew a gun... At that point, especially in a public situation where other lives are endangered by the fact that he has the gun and is threatening to use the gun, I would not have a duty of retreat because my life is in direct danger and so would the lives of others be, if that makes sense. Because how do I retreat? You start shooting at me. So my understanding would have been In the state of California, not only was just where this caller is from based on the area code, uh, not only was the law enforcement officer justified in his shooting, a private citizen who was legally armed under California law will also have been justified in, in using lethal force in the situation. In fact, here's the big thing. Leo or not, the standard is the same, especially in an off-duty situation. My understanding, as it's been explained on the show in the past by people like James Yeager and Frank Sharp Jr. that do this for a living. That said, again, I'm not an attorney. I don't even pretend to be one. I do not know the laws of the state of California, and I do my damnedest to not ever step foot in that state because of the looniness that goes on there. So I do not know. But I will say this. In almost every state that has concealed carry permit, concealed carry license type situation. There's, there's training requirements. There's some where there's no training requirements and there's no permit required. And I think there might be a couple where you get a permit without any training and they have the permit. And some that have, you can carry without a permit, but they have a permit just so you can get reciprocity with other states, things like that, okay? But most of them have some level of training requirement. As far as I know, every state with a duty-to-retreat doctrine that has concealed carry also has training requirements. If that's the case, what is legitimate as far as a shoot and no shoot, lethal force situation, drawing, all that should be part of that training. And if it's not, then the state to me has fallen short of its duty, which doesn't surprise me, to make sure that the citizen that's issuing with the In this case, I know you're going to say it's a right, but in the in the legal doctrine, this would be a privilege of carry. I know it's a right. I know the Constitution guarantee. I get that. But legally, within the state you're talking about, let's say California, it is viewed legally as a privilege obtained through licensure. Okay? And if you're going to hold a person accountable to that license and say that this training is a, 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 a predeterminant of getting that licensure, then that training should include justifiable use of force. But there's my understanding of duty of retreat. Duty of retreat applies when there is no imminent threat of life or harm. There might be a verbal uh, statement of threat, but you got some guy standing there ripping his shirt off, screaming like he's the hawk and he's going to beat your ass, and you say, listen, asswipe, you, you calm your shit down or I'm going to pound your head in, and then he comes after you and you shoot him, that's not okay. And, and I would tell you, if that's exactly what happens, I don't think it's okay either. I don't want it made illegal, but I don't think it's okay. 
my demeanor when I am armed is probably what it should always be, okay? But it is absolute de-escalation. Because the way I look at it, when someone's acting a fool, doing something stupid, and I know that I have lethal force capability, if I engage them when I don't need to, I am in fact baiting them into a situation that may result in death. So I like the concept of duty of retreat as a philosophy. But I think in the end, the facts have to speak for whether or not lethal force was necessary. And duty of retreat is very, very subjective because, again, when I retreat, I may in fact make myself vulnerable, and you've already threatened to do violence to me. Okay, so I, I, I would love a further expert opinion on this. But that's how I understand it. Please check with your own state. Let's take another one. This one, I'm pulling kids out of school. Hey, Jack. Uh, my name is Matt. I call in frequently. But I did something today that was either really smart or really stupid. I pulled my kids out of school. I'll give you a little backstory. They went to government school. We bought our homestead three years ago. They went to government school. Uh Government school, all they wanted to do was uh, pass a test, pass this test, pass this test, pass this test. I took them out of government school, put them in a private school. Uh, $900 a month for a private school, put them in a private school, and uh, they didn't treat us with respect. I had a teacher tell me that she didn't know how, I don't know how to teach your daughter. She doesn't respond to anything I do. I said, have you tried this? Have you tried this? Have you tried this? This is what I do when it's time to, you know, learn addition. And it works at home. Have you tried it? Teacher gets all butthurt. And then today I just, uh, the final straw with some of the administrators there. I, I swallowed my pride thinking this is best for my kids. I got to tell you honestly, I'm excited. But I'm also very scared. There are things that I know that I'm not going to be able to teach them, like trig, calculus, certain parts of robotics, you know, things that are certain parts of technology and things. And, yes, I understand that that comes along later, but I don't necessarily have the skill set to teach that. I'm sure that I'll have some expert counsel questions for Mike and Sue, but I just wanted to share that with you that, Probably the right thing. I'm excited and scared about it. And I think there's other parents out there that would benefit from knowing that there's a guy that's excited and scared about pulling his kids out of a, out of school to do it himself. Thanks for all you do, buddy. Have a good one. I, I, I think it's interesting, just looking at the angle of this question, that you, uh, you put your kids in a school for $900 a month. And the teacher was not capable of teaching your child. And you gave the teacher multiple ways with which you know that your child is capable of learning. And the teacher said she couldn't do that. To the point where you extricated your child from a private institution paying them $900 a month, um, which is a significant amount of money, by the way. 
And now you're worried that you are not qualified to teach your children as good as a teacher who you've now decided is not qualified to teach your, your, your child. Do you, do, you, do you see the irony in that? Okay, so here's the thing. When we teach properly, it is always the case that the student will learn more about that which they are most passionate about than the teacher knows. So no matter what I teach about on this, this show, my hope is that it actually inspires someone to learn more about it and do more with it than I will ever know or do with it, especially if it's something I'm just interested in versus passionate about. I mean, we talk about a thousand subjects here, right? I can't be, I can't be an expert in all of them, and I don't want to be. But we teach the methodology of learning, and then the student uses the passion for information to learn about the things they either need to or want to. So I don't think you have to know trigonometry to produce a homeschooler that knows trigonometry. I mean, I know an awful lot about snakes and, and, and other reptiles to the point where I would say I'm a damn good amateur herpetologist. I know about breeding snakes and stuff like that. Who taught me? Did I learn that in school? But I will tell you, to be fair to the government education system, I did learn skills in that school that coupled with my passion for knowledge about reptiles made me what I would consider an amateur-level expert in at least some aspects of certain reptiles. Now, I guarantee you my teachers that had an impact on my learning that were good teachers don't know hide nor hair about reptiles. And I'm not talking about, well, I know this now. I'm talking about like when I came out of high school. I'd done volunteer work for zoos. There was no project there. I didn't get extra credit for it. I did because I wanted to. Now, had I had a passion for computer programming, I probably would have went a lot further with mathematics because I would have saw the need for it. If I, you know, and I learned the mathematics necessary to get the diploma so then I could do what I wanted. So I don't think you should even worry about this right now. Worry about developing an environment of learning conducive to helping your, your child learn the things they need to learn. And then the other thing I would say is, so you're not paying $900 a month for private school. Put $500 a month into an account to fund the things that are necessary for your kids that you can't do, and you've got a, a budget that's far and away above what most homeschoolers ever dream of. And if you get to a point where they're stuck on something you don't know how to do, and they need it for a state requirement because there's some level of state testing, or they need it because they've made a decision about a path that they're going to take, and they need this for that path, or because they just want to be able to do it, then hire them a tutor that's specific to that thing to get them past that hurdle so they can continue their own self-learning and development. Teachers don't teach. I think that's one of the biggest problems we have. We think teachers teach. In other words, that you don't know how to do something, so I show you how to do it, and now you know how to do it. Teachers enable learning. That's teaching. We've destroyed the word. It's the enablement of learning to remove the roadblocks. Not a religious guy, but I quote the truth wherever I find it, and there's a lot of it in Scripture. There's an old Scripture that has been completely misunderstood Because most people that, 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 that teach Christian scripture that talk about the Old Testament don't know Hebrew. 
And it's a proverb, and it is, train up a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from it. And we've taken that to be a strict disciplinarian. I've heard preachers use that as a way to talk about being, on some level, at least a strict disciplinarian. And marry it with other proverbs that they also don't understand, like spare the rod and spoiling the child. Okay, But the verb in Hebrew for train up is the same verb that would be used to describe the action of a midwife putting their hand in the child's mouth and clearing the throat of a newborn baby so that it can breathe. And a far more accurate translation of this, this proverb would be clear the way for a child in the way that he should go. And when he is old, he will not depart from his path. That would be a far more accurate description of that ancient piece of wisdom if you knew the meaning of the root word. That's the job of a teacher. So if you can clear the path for your child and enable them to accomplish the things that they want in life, you are more qualified to teach them than any government teacher with any certificate ever will be. And on top of this, I will add the following. Our government school system that talks all this bullshit about the need for calculus and trigonometry and all these other advanced mathematics that maybe 10 to 15% of society in their profession needs anything to do with graduate shit tons of people that can barely read, let alone do trigonometry every year. You don't have to be perfect. You just have to be good. And in many instances, these government schools that talk such lofty bullshit are not even not good. They're not even mediocre. Because we've taken the meaning of actual education, which is clearing the path and enabling learning, And we've changed it into a verb that means to stuff information in a head and cause regurgitation. Clear the way for your child, and everything will take care of itself. Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Troy in Denton, Texas. I am a driver for Uber Eats. I was listening to a podcast a couple weeks ago. From uh, uh, You were talking about Uber and Lyft and the economics of that. Uh, Uber Eats is just like Uber, except I deliver food to people. And uh, I use MileIQ to track my mileage. And, yes, it is a net negative uh, for tax purposes. Uh, I make probably an average of, like, 12 bucks an hour. Um, but that's, you know, tax-free to me. Yeah, there's a, some gas, but it's negligible. I mean, it's not negligible, but it's not a lot. And then... Um, I also have a day job. I'm doing this at night to make a little extra money. And uh, so the net negative also winds up counting towards my normal day job as a net negative for tax purposes. So, uh, yeah, the economics are there. So, anyway, if uh, if anybody uh, wants any details, uh, they can email me at uh, ubereatstroy. Uh, at gmail.com, and I can send the details on how to sign up if they're interested on making a little easy uh, easy money and schedules whenever you want to. You go online when you're ready, and you go offline when you're done. Thanks, Jack. Appreciate it. Bye. Well, good call, and I'll be short with it because it just simply backs up what I said last month, which is now last year, right? The, when we have these hit pieces about Uber where they say the drivers are not making money, and they say something like the cost of operating a vehicle, and they're taking into account mileage deductions, 
as wear and tear and total usage of the vehicle, that's a phantom loss, and we play that against taxes. But I guess my, you know, so I'm not here like going, everybody should go Uber. I'm not going to do it. You know, it doesn't work for me. But I have good friends that do it, and it works right for them. And I've, I've seen way too many people start out with like a Kia that are now driving like a freaking, you know, Escalade uh, paid for by Uber so that they can get, you know, Uber black and what have you clients to know that it must work or they wouldn't be doing that shit. But you hear this guy like, okay, not only do I make money at the end of the day that I get to keep, And not only do I create a loss so I don't pay any tax on that money, but I take that loss and I defer it against my other income to reduce my taxable income so I pay even less taxes. Okay, this is called dun, 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 working the system. Okay, And we just had a question about homeschooling, and one of the biggest questions we get around homeschooling is, I can't do it, I would like to, and I can't, but what do I do? to get my child to get the best use out of public education. Teach them to work the system. That's what you do. Teach them to work the system. I'll tell a quick story. When I was a kid in high school, I had this term paper I was supposed to do, and the science teacher made a mistake. She explained to me how grade point averages work, and that was the end of me doing the term paper. And that was you got four quarters to the, to the, to the grade. This is a four-quarter course, a year-long course. And those four letters equaled numbers, you know, zero, one, two, three, four. And an A was a four. And if you got three A's, it was four, twelve. And then you got three for a, a, a two, for a C, even one uh, quarter. You still get an A final average. And then she made the even bigger mistake telling me the full truth, the whole truth, and nothing but the truth that on a college transcript or anything like that, nobody sees your individual grades, just your final grade point average from the course and the total GPA. And then she told me how she graded courses, and it was how homework went in, which was zero for homework. Didn't give a shit for homework. She graded your, your tests, and your test scores wore your GPA for the class. But the, the, uh, the term paper for quarter two would count as two test grades, and if you got A's on all the tests, and you only got a, uh, you got a zero for, the, uh, for the, the term paper, the best you could do was a C for your grade point for that quarter. Did the math and said, so if you get three A's and a C, do you get an A final average? She said, yes. Okay, not doing it. And people pulled their hair out and got all upset and gnashed teeth and wailed, but in the end I got three A's, a C, and a final average of an A, which still hasn't affected my life one way or the other because I didn't go on to college, I didn't care to. But I preserved the opportunity because I worked the system. Now most people would want to punish a child like that. Uh-uh, no. I think we should teach our children to work systems. We should give them systems to work. I gave my son a system to work when he was a kid with getting paid his allowance, and uh, he had an employee handbook, and if he did it, he could get paid three times what his allowance was if he worked it, and he could get away with missing some stuff and still do okay. And there were strategic times to get away with things and bad times to get away with things where they'd cost you more. And I built those holes into the system so he would either optimize them or fail to optimize them so he would learn from it. And the reality is we have to interact with the nonsense that is society. And society's become a bunch of nonsense. And we need to learn to work systems, whether it's a tax code, whether it's what we can get away with in an HOA that we're stuck in, 
whether it's what we can do at work to get ahead or how we can laterally move outside of the company to move ahead, if we realize that in our job, in our career, in our progression, that moving up in our company is going to be very slow, so the, the faster move up is to transfer to another company and make an immediate move up and then come back to another company and ping pong. And if that's what works best in our career, then we should do that versus be loyal to a company that will throw us out in the street the first time we are not profitable for them. That's what we should do. We work systems. This is working a system. Learn to work systems. Teach kids to work systems. Hi, Jack. Give uh, them Daniel systems here. to work. Um, Let's take another one. I have a question for you that's pretty broad. Um, and it's about parenting. And so my question is, um, if you yourself were a parent of uh, young children today, you know, age five or younger, um, and you were trying to prepare them to, for the future, um, is there a core philosophy of parenting um, that you align with or, um, you know, would um, guide how you would parent your children? And also, um Are there things that um, you would do as a parent of young children today um, that you wouldn't have done, uh, for example, in the past um, when you were a parent of, of a young child? Would um, would your considerations of kind of how to implement the philosophy change based on um, the world today and, and what you expect for the future? Um, uh, thank you. Um, I appreciate it. I think, you know, it's a, it's a challenge for parents today, and so I'm curious how you would uh, tackle You know, the age you're talking about, I mean, I would make sure they're exposed to electronics and things like that. My, my, my granddaughter's a year and a half, so already figuring out how to work a smartphone, and I think that's good. I might place some more limitations on, on children today on their electronics than I would in the past. But at the age you're talking about, you know, four and five years old, there's a limited intellectual capability, and I think challenging them, encouraging learning and fun is what we do, and that's universal. I, I, I don't think we should... We should get too wrapped up about this. I mean, parents have managed to raise children largely without the input of the state or the opinions of others. For the majority of time, humans have walked on the planet. Because in the end, we know best what our children need. Now, there are special needs children where there are very deep challenges and things like that. But the average kiddo, again, I'm back to clear the way for the child. Just clear the way. Let them pursue that which they are most interested in unless it is detrimental to them. And I'm actually learning a lot about young kids right now as a grandfather that I never learned as a father because when I met Dorothy, Matthew was just turning seven years old. So seven's about the oldest I ever dealt with or youngest I ever dealt with. And it took about six months to a year before I was really in that role of co-parenting and it took about another year before he accepted it just reality because i think when you when you come into a kid's life and they're old enough to really understand what's going on and a seven-year-old is dad is a title you freaking earn you do not expect it you do not demand it you don't even encourage it uh in any way other than by doing it and then when they call you dad you've earned it you know I really believe that. So my experience in parenting as a step-parent may not be as directly applicable to being a dad with a four-year-old running around. 
Well, I'm learning a lot being a grandfather. My my grandson was three when he came into my life. He's here every day. My wife just left to pick him up right now from school. My granddaughter's here every day, first thing in the morning, all the way till uh, we we drop him off with the parents at the end of the day. And uh, I'm I'm enjoying it. Let me tell you what I'm teaching a one and a half year old girl. A fish takes in my office. That little girl comes in here. She barely speaks yet. I mean, she's using she's like Papa once in a while and Mama and Dada and Doggy. I think has come out a couple of times and things like that. But no sentence structure, nothing like. But that little girl will come in here. I'll go show me a Grammy. A Grammy, which a kid points to. It. Where's a Danya? There's the Danya. Where's a Molly? Where's the cichlids? The whole tank down the bottom is a cichlid. Where's the shark? Right there. Where's the angelfish? Right there. Which food goes to the fish on top? Which points to the, the flakes, because that goes to the tropical fish. Which food do the cichlids get? She points to the pellets, because she likes to watch them eat. She knows what's... She's a year and a half old. I didn't really teach her that. I just brought her in here and pointed at angelfish. Angelfish? And where's the angelfish? And she point at the roof. Okay. No, angelfish. Where's the angelfish? She pointed at the angelfish. Good girl. Just get them learning something. Make sure they're happy. Make sure they're engaged. Don't don't worry if they're occasionally unhappy. That's what other that's what parents are screwing up left and right. I want them to always be happy. Well, then you want a kid that's got a mental problem. What would you say about an adult that sat there with a smile on their face all the time and was always freaking happy? You're like, oh my god, stop it! There's something wrong with you. Don't expect your kids to always be happy. Let them be disappointed. Let them be. But in general, their overall mode should be one of happiness. And then everything else will take care of itself. Don't stress parenting. I mean, those of us in Gen X, we turned out pretty well, and we're the generation that mostly parented ourselves. Don't do that, though. Don't be completely hands-off, obviously. But what would I do today differently than I would have done when I was 25? Not much. Because kids don't change. Unfortunately, we change, and we start wrapping them in bubble wrap and shit like that. Um... I, if you look up wusses on the, the website, the survivalpodcast.com, you'll, you'll find a, a podcast I did about developing resilient children in a world full of wusses. And that'll give you more on this. Ooh, with that, let's take another one. This one on water storage. Hey, Jack. This is Doug from central Indiana. Um, I was curious if you had any good suggestions for a, a suburban storage of extra water. Um, taking your advice, I've got, I don't know, probably 20 to 30 gallons stored up uh, using old vinegar jugs and um, the uh, iced tea jugs like you've talked about in the past. Uh, I have a wife and two sons and a dog, and I was just looking for some good way to store extra water. Um, I don't really have any good outbuildings that are heated or anything like that. Uh, being in Indiana, we had to worry about freezing, so I'd be afraid of, of leaving like you know, a 55-gallon drum full of water or something like that. Uh, just curious if you have any good suggestions. Thanks a lot. Thanks for everything you do. You know, this is one I'm not exactly an expert on. I just struggled through a five-day freeze here, and you guys have like, you know, five weeks at a time below freezing and shit sometimes. Um, I will say this. I have the big, giant, black poly tanks that are like rain catch. They're made for rain catchment. They ain't going to break. Now, it'll be somewhere that water comes out, and a faucet or a spigot or something like that can break on you. Um, but while it's frozen, it's not going to leak out. And the... the the way I've done it, I have basically reducers in them, and they come down to a three-quarter inch hose bib. And the three-quarter inch hose bib I use are the ones with the swing arm on them instead of a screw handle. 
And they do eventually fail and frost, and a lot of times they'll fail to point. I won't even replace them because there'll be a very tiny, slow drip. They'll kind of form a crack on the side of the ball, and it usually won't even prevent them from holding water. Uh, but when they do need to be changed out, you've got to change them out. So what I would do, uh, if I was going to use a black poly tank in a cold climate like that, use those balls, drain some water out of the tank before it freeze so it's not completely full, and have a cutoff valve that's open so that it is the, the hose bib that's, that's you know basically stopping the water where the terminal end is. So it's the point of failure. And that way, if that hose bib fails bad enough and you feel it needs to be replaced, you can shut that, you know, that straight valve. This is after defrost, obviously. Unscrew that hose bib, replace it, and then open that straight valve back up. So that would be one if you're going to use those. Um, I don't know that they're your best solution. But I do know people in cold climates use them. So I would look, you know, I'd look in, like, around you, what do people that do agriculture and stuff use for extra water storage? Probably the best bet in your, your your climate is a pond. I don't know if your you know your land is a fairly small piece of land that may not support this, but even if you look at something like my timber frame pond, now it's an eight foot by eight foot timber frame structure. It's about three and a half foot deep water, and it got really iced over in this last week, but it didn't freeze through. Um, if that were in the ground, it would be even more resilient. And the only reason it's not in the ground here is because I can't do it. So even just a you know something like an eight foot by eight foot ornamental pond that maybe you bring a foot and a half up above ground with timber framing with you know something for ornamental purposes and there would be an aquaculture thing you have water there for emergency purposes and even if it's frozen you know six eight inches thick across the top with an ice auger like an ice fisherman uses you still have access to water underneath it now it ain't water you can just drink the way that it is but you throw it through a Berkey and it's probably cleaner than the water it comes from your city that would be another way I mean, I, this is something I'm weak on because I haven't ever had to deal with it. So I'm interested in what people in cold climates do to store extra water. Now, kudos to you for storing about 30 gallons of water in jugs and bottles and stuff like that because that's always a place to start because it's always easiest, it's most portable, and it's most doable. Um, so, I mean, I don't know. If you have a garage, a lot of times things don't freeze up in garages quite as bad as they do elsewhere. It's something that, again, I I know my limits, and I'd be interested in hearing from others that are in climates similar to Indiana or colder on what you do for water storage. Because I see things like this. I watch shows like Buying Alaska and all, and they have water tanks and stuff, you know, to pump water to and all. I'm like, how the hell do you keep that from freezing up? And uh, I guess one of the big things is always remember, water freezes from the top down, and that's why life's possible on Earth. But the, the limitation there then is... You've got some way to get water out the bottom of these tanks. So another possibility, and this may be what people do that use above-ground tank systems in these cold climates, is that we have some sort of a pump at the bottom and some way to purge the line so the line never freezes because it's always empty except when it's being used. And then we can pump out from the bottom where the water freezes last from underneath the ice. Now, I, I think that's a point of diminishing returns, but the reality is you'd use that in an emergency. You probably aren't using that reserve water in winter. Um, my black water tanks are used all year round. I never use them in winter because I'm not irrigating, and that's what they're for. So, I mean, those are some other thoughts. Love to hear from people. What's the solution for large-scale water storage in cold climates? Let's take another one. Hi, Jack. This is Carlos from Hot Springs, and my question is what are your thoughts on indoor quail aviary. 
details. I have a crawl space that I'm not using for anything, and I'm thinking about turning it into an, an over, uh, aviary. The space is approximately about 12 by 25 foot and 7 foot tall. Uh, it's about 6 foot underground, so the temperature stays the same most of the year. Uh, but because it's 6 foot underground, there is no natural light. What would be the pros and cons about turning that into an aviary? Thank you. So let's let's talk about the definite good before we talk about the definite possibly bad. I said the definite good before we talk about the possibly bad. Definite good. Uh, uniform temperature. That's probably great. Uh, anything like that underground is going to be a temperature warm enough for quail to be happy. Number two, um, they're definitely protected from any kind of predators or anything like that down there. So that's that's fine too. Um, you're going to have to use artificial lighting, which could be a negative, I guess, because you have to have energy there. But the beauty of that is since you're going to be doing that anyway, you go ahead and put them on a 14 on, 10 off on your timer, and you got quail laying all the time. No issues with photo period. Uh, so all of those are goods. Here's the biggest concerns I have. Access. How easy is it going to be to get down there and do what you need to do? Um, and bring in that which you need to bring in, and then this would be my biggest concern, to take out that which you need to take out. If we let little birds run all over the place, and little birds poop and excrete urea everywhere that they go, they don't train. You can actually train certain lizards to poop in a certain place, believe it or not, like uh, red tegu. A uh, big-ass lizard that you probably shouldn't get unless you know what you're doing. Um, but they can actually be trained to like have a place where they go to the bathroom. Birds, in fact, are related to reptiles, but you're, you're, you're not going to teach a quail this is the place to poo and pee. They just go, and they lay wherever they want to. Um, I've seen quail just kind of be walking around happy, and then they just squat down, pop out an egg, and keep going. Like So that's, that, that's the way they excrete uh, excrement. So what that means is, and it's not terrible. I mean, we do that in our aviary. We, they, they go where they want, but we have a dirt floor, and we bring in wood chips. And we, they, when they kind of wear the wood chips down, we bring in another load. That's easy to do for us. It may not be easy to get down into a crawl space aviary. So you're going to have to think about the fact that you're going to have to use deep litter. Um, the bigger the aviary, the more of a chore it will be to remove and return deep litter. Now, what I would try to look at doing, they don't need a ton of space, okay? Whatever you give them in an aviary will be such a better life and a happier life for a quail than it will ever live in a cage. And I don't have a problem putting a quail in a cage. I'm just saying, like, it's an upgrade. So accept that it's an upgrade. If you either inside the aviary or just outside of the aviary in the space where you don't have to go very far, can put in a worm farm so that what we're doing is we're taking a bit of material and dropping it in the worm farm from time to time and bringing in some new material in bags and then processing it through the worm farm and making fertility that we can take out and put into a garden or something like that. It's great, and it's all in one place, and it's probably doable. And, and, and the truth is that is my biggest concern for you is being able to get material in and material out. If you can, if it's a walkout type basement type situation, which I don't know, crawl spaces generally work that way. I, I am not of the background of ever having a seven foot tall crawl space in anything. Uh, other than underneath an entire building and it wasn't seven feet because I banged my head on it a few times when I was a contractor. Um, but, uh, 
Yeah, I mean, that's that's my only real concern is you're, you're talking about a significant amount of material, and because we're not talking about dirt floor, outside or whatever, like there's some point at which that which goes in must come out. I'm not really worried about odor. If you have enough carbon there, like wood chips, I'm saying, or even like dried leaves or whatever is your substrate, this is not going to be a problem. And then also containment of that substrate. So you need to make, like, make sure they're not throwing it out. They don't scratch like chickens. But they scratch a bit, they dig a bit, they like to get into dirt. So um, if you have 100% substrate for them, I don't know if this is on concrete or a dirt floor. A lot of times crawl spaces under buildings is a dirt floor. But let's say that it's not a dirt floor, it's concrete. That will actually make it easier. So much so that you might even put in concrete or put use pavers to build a platform inside the aviary so that you can scrape up material with like a flat shovel, like a number 10 coal shovel or something like that, like a snow shovel type sh shovel, and right into your worm farm. All right? Um, but sooner or later, well, that goes in what has to come out. And so when they are messing around in it, They can throw it outside of that area, and you have to decide whether that matters or not to you. And if they're not going to have a dirt floor, then what we're going to need to provide them is some sort of a bin with sand in it and dirt in it so they can take dust baths. And they go in there like a little whirlwind, and they'll throw some of that out too. So, you know, don't fill it to the top. But the concrete mixing trays from Lowe's and Home Depot, and like for quail, like a seven-gallon one is fine because it's shallow enough they can easily get in and out um, and filled like halfway. And, but you're going you're gonna to find that after a while it's empty, it needs to be refilled. So think about waste and what you're going to do with it and getting material in and out and getting yourself in and out. And then I guess a big thing is something in a crawl space is not really visible. And so you need to make sure that you have some sort of a reminder or whatever to get down there and do that what you need to do. Right? I mean, you, if you don't pay attention to them, they're still down there and you could have problems. So, you know, a daily visit is a must, I think. And once you automate, you can automate watering and feeding and stuff like to the point where you could probably go a, a week without going down there and everything would be okay. But I wouldn't make a practice of it. So making sure that, you know, you don't, not because it's out of sight, it doesn't become out of mind. So those are my concerns. Anyway, I think it's an interesting project. I'd love to hear more about it. Let's take a question on guns to round things out for the day. Hey, Jack, this is Tom in Pilot Mountain, North Carolina. I calling with a question for you about Hatfield shotguns that they have at Walmart. Uh, I've seen single shots there for $99 and semi-autos for uh, just $199 recently. Salesman said that they're great guns, and uh, he's got one that got one for his kid, and his kid uh, shoots it really well, and he likes it. And I actually talked to a fellow customer at a different Walmart, and he said he's put – 2,500 rounds through the semi-auto, and he loves it and thinks it's a great value. So I'm curious to know uh, what you think about them. Have you ever heard of them? If uh, uh, you have any thoughts on them, thanks a lot. Love the show. Bye-bye. So, no, I had, had not heard of this gun, and it's probably why the show's out a little later today than it should have been because I spent an awful lot of time looking at people playing with them on YouTube. When I find out about a new gun, especially a gun that's under 100 bucks for a single shot, Uh, and, you know, a buck ninety-nine for a semi, not a pump, a semi-auto that looks like a pretty damn good gun, um, I'm interested. So let me give you my thoughts on them, and the good, the bad, and the sort of kind of maybe a little bit ugly, but not really. 
Uh, let's start with the semi-auto. The semi-auto is very similar in function and format. Now, all semi-auto shotguns are generally quite similar, but it makes you think of a Remington 1100. It ain't as pretty, it ain't as well-finished, and it ain't a Remington 1100. I ain't saying that. But it has that, it looks like when somebody decided they was going to make a budget auto loader, they used their, the 870 kind of as the template and starter point and began cutting down from there into what they could and could not do to get that gun in. Now the retail on the, the semi-auto is 300 bucks, but the street price is about 199. What I like about it, it's shotgun and it's a semi-auto and from the videos I watched, it works. It doesn't jam. It's not a jam-o-matic. It functions the way that it's supposed to with everything from light target loads up to heavier high brass loads. So you have a gun that will go out and not be an 1100, but do what an 1100 will do that normally would cost you like over a thousand bucks for $200. So it'd be a great gun in the dove field. It is available in 12, 20, and 410. Semi auto 410s are like hen's teeth. They're expensive, even when they're old and they didn't sell for that much when they came new in a box. They're expensive. They might come down in price just because there's an option now out there that's affordable. Um, when I, I have a, a little uh, Winchester pump action 410 that I got for like 240 bucks at a gun show, I got a package deal, so I really didn't even pay that for it. I bought a an old 760 and 270 that had been played around with and it together. But let's say I paid 200 bucks for it. I was walking around, and every person I walked by at that damn gun show, sir, do you want to sell your gun? Sir, do you want to sell your gun? Several people behind tables at the gun show tried to buy it from me. People like 410s and pumps and semi-autos. So I, I like that. Um, as a 12-gauge, it's an all-around decent shotgun. I think that you could go buy one of those and hunt for the rest of your life with it as far as what you do with a shotgun and be okay. It comes with a screw-in choke tube. Improved, modified, and full. There is nothing you cannot do with that. Or improved cylinder, modified, and full. I did not improve, modified, and full. Improved cylinder, modified, and full. And it's probably the case that they used an off-the-market choke tube like wind choke or rem choke. I don't know which one it is, but there's no reason to go out and develop your own choke tubes. That would just add to the cost. So they probably use an off-the-shelf choke tube situation, which means you can go to extra full, you can go to cylinder bolt, you can do all that stuff. You can put a rifle freaking you know, choke tube in there that I don't think does jack shit, by the way, if you really want to. Um, there's a lot you can do with that. So I think it's great for $199. Um, it will never be a Bernelli or a Remington, but it, it's a working man's gun. And if you wanted to pick up like a semi-auto 20 gauge and you were working with a youngster and you're going to put him out in a dove field or something with it when he had gotten to the point where he's okay with a semi-auto, 199 bucks. How the hell do I bitch about this? The downsides. Okay. Number one, it comes with a standard 28-inch barrel. I hate 28-inch barrel shotguns. I always, when I buy like an 870 or a semi-auto or whatever, I always try to buy a 26-inch barrel. If it's a sporting shotgun, I'm not talking about a survival gun, I'm not talking about a home defense shotgun, I find 26 inches to be the optimum weight for a shotgun barrel so that if I'm going through woods with a shotgun, 
It's a little bit shorter. It's a little bit handier, but I still have a long siding plane for making longer shots on like ducks or doves in the wind or something. So I prefer a two inch shorter barrel, and I really like shotgun barrels at about 24 inches, even for sport, you know, for sporting purposes. Um, so there ain't any aftermarket barrels for a $199 shotgun, and there probably won't be. So it is what it is, and it's not likely that they're going to be making them with shorter barrels. Uh, so th that's the thing is the barrel length is probably a constant on that, and the um, the, the hope of an aftermarket barrel. Like if you have an 870, there's a million options for barrels, different aftermarket companies, stuff like that, because they're so damn popular. Uh, who knows? In the future, it's a tube. It's too, it ain't complicated to make, so you know there may be some if these things really take off. Let's let's move to the uh, single shot. Now these retail, I believe, on their site, they, the retail on them was 150. Or it might even be $199. I don't know, remember what it is, but Walmart's selling for $99. Bucks. And they're all over Gunbroker for $99, bucks, et cetera. So, you know, they've set the retail price higher and protect their channel, et cetera, and set expectations so that the channel can sell at a discount and make some money. So, I am kind of blown away by this $99 single shot. It isn't a $1,500 single shot trap shotgun. But it's very styled in the same manner. One of the things people have said about it in reviews that is a like seen as a, a detriment is it does not have an ejector. It has an extractor, which means when you break it after you fire it, it doesn't throw the shell out. It just kind of lifts it out, and you pull it out with one hand and throw another one in. That's actually, to me, preferable. Um, I've always been the kind of guy when I'm using a single shot that ejects, I put my hand over and catch that 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 brass or that shell so that it doesn't go to the ground. So that actually I like. When I was big into the NEF world, NEF single shots, uh, tinkering, a lot of guys actually ex converted their ejectors into extractors for that very reason. So I like that. It opens a great, like it opens up onto itself. It doesn't just stop like halfway like the NEFs or most single shots do. Uh, it's got ventilated rib, uh, 28 inch barrel. The single shot though, I, that bothers me less. Because there's no action in a single shot. The, 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 the action collapses onto itself and the barrel comes back to the breech because there's no place for a shell to be chambered. So a 28-inch single shot is several inches shorter than a 28-inch pump or semi-auto. So it's a bit handier, good weight on it, and available in 12, 20, and 410. So that's awesome as well. Then, of course... You get a single shot that's cheap. People want to modify it. There's a bunch of guys out there doing modifications. I got a link to one modification uh, video, but pretty much people are doing the same thing: short the barrel down to about 19 inches, and then remove some wood from the forearm so there's a place for the trigger guard to go. File down the trigger guard a bit, and basically the thing folds in on itself and it becomes this compact thing that's about 20 inches long and it'll go in a backpack. It's cool. It's cool. Here's my problem with it. A lot of guys are got some shooting videos of it and all. They say, oh, it's pretty good. It's it's not. You've you've basically created a legal sawn-off shotgun, and it has no choke. And they'll say, well, it's cylinder bore. It's not cylinder bore, dummy. Um, shotgun tubes or barrels are trunctuated. They start out fairly large, and they get narrower and narrower and narrower as they go down to the choke, and then there's a constriction point at the choke. If you cut one far enough back in a 28-inch barrel cut back to 20 inches, uh, you're not cylinder bore. You're 
overbore. You're bigger than cylinder bore, what they would call or measure with calipers as a cylinder bore. So you don't have any real constriction. You have a very wide spray. For personal defense, that's fine, but a single-shot shotgun is personal defense only when it's the last option. I'm serious. Um, it just isn't a great option for defensive purposes in general. And what really that would excel as is that cut-down foldable thing would be a pack gun. So we're going out backpacking. We might need to shoot a squirrel. We might need to, if we get a survival situation, throw a slug in there and take a deer. It might be a trapper's gun. We can put a gun adapter in it and put a .22 in it and use it for dispatching of our trapped animals. I mean, so many different. A shotgun is so versatile. So this would be my question for the gunsmiths out there, if you looked at one of these. If you shorten it down, I mean, 19 and a half inches is where people are shortening to because it, it keeps it just inside the stock when it folds on itself, kind of like a Kel-Tec Sub-2K does, but not quite that compact. And then they put a little hook on it, and it latches, and it stays closed, and, and what have you. If you cut it that far down that truncation of the cone, is there enough barrel left without serious modifications to then tap in and re-choke it with something like a rem choke or wind choke system? If you could shorten this thing to about 20-inch barrel and have it use reusable chokes without spending a kidney to do it, then you got something. You put some fiber optic sights on like the guy did in the video I'm linked to, and you have the constriction to something like modified. You got a squirrel gun. You got you throw a couple uh, 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 ammo adapters in there, right? And you are able to shoot things like 9mm at it, but yet you still have a shotgun perform the way a shotgun's supposed to perform. We can throw an improved cylinder uh, choke in there, which to me is the best all-around choke that was ever made for shotguns ever. Uh, we can have that in 12-gauge, 20-gauge, or 410. Holy crap. I think it'd be an incredible pack gun. But I think when you lob that barrel off, right, with a hacksaw or whatever, even if you do it right where it's nicely done and it looks good, you just don't have a good shotgun anymore. It just doesn't do what a shotgun's supposed to do. It just doesn't knock birds out of the air at 25, 30 yards anymore consistently. It puts giant holes in the pattern. So that would be if you're going to play with it, you know, that's the limitation that you're going to... Uh, To, uh, to come up with there. Now, as an aside, we're, we're done with that question, and I do have links to both the gun and the video, and you from one starting video, you can find tons of videos on it. Um, I, I mentioned gun adapters. So gun adapters have these tubes, basically, some of them rifled, that you can drop into a single-shot shotgun, and then you can fire like a 9mm or a .22 or a .38, etc., out of your shotguns. I think these are really cool. I've reached out to this company several times about possibly doing an MSB discount. I've never heard a peep back. If any of you know someone at Gun Adapters, and you can start a dialogue between us, I would appreciate a introduction. I would love to get you all a discount on GunAdapters.com. Uh, I, I think they're they're really cool, um, and it's you know you don't need an FFL or anything because there's just an adapter that goes into the gun that you've already got under FFL. So I mean, it's they're awesome. And I would love to get y'all any kind of a discount. I just can't get anybody there to talk to me. So if y'all can help me help you, uh, if anybody's got contacts there, put them in touch with me. Do a mutually uh, introductory email or something like that. And just let them know that I'm worth talking to, that there's enough people out there that it's probably worth their time. Anyway, I love single-shot shotguns. Maybe next week I'll do a whole show on single-shot shotguns and the, the versatility that they offer. In fact, I love shotguns so much that this question should have been like the fourth question today, and I pushed it to the end just because I wanted to finish with it.
Anyway, with that, we have wrapped up today's show, and I want to remind you guys that you can help support the show with tspaz.com, T-S-P-A-Z.com. That's where you'll find all of my Amazon reviews and all other kinds of cool stuff. And as long as you do your online shopping through tspaz.com, you help support TSP and the work we do no matter what you buy if you go through tspaz.com first. Today's reviewed product for you is a set of kitchen shears. I know what you're thinking. Jackie's bringing back the Red Yeti Wear Shears. Those of you who have purchased Red Yeti Wear Shears, you know why I recommended them so highly. And you might wonder why it's been so long since I brought them back around. The reason is because they stopped making them. I believe every kitchen should have a couple pairs of kitchen shears because two is one and one is none. For, for, for instance, one might be in the dishwasher while it's running and you need to take the backbone out of a chicken just for instance, right? But red, when I found Red Yeti wear shears, I was like, these are just the greatest, sharpest, edge-retentative, functioning kitchen shears I've ever found. And so I was going to bring them back around a couple months ago, and lo and behold, they didn't have them available. I kept waiting for them to come back. It just seems like they're gone. Like they're not available, not just on Amazon. They're not available anywhere. So I wanted to be able to still recommend a pair of kitchen shears because they are such a good kitchen tool, and again, they belong in every kitchen. And I, I, I researched for like, a, I swear to God, guys, this is what I do for you guys. I researched for like almost a month, and nothing else meets my standards except the thing that I have always used before I found Red Yeti wear shears. Fisker 7-inch take-apart shears. Um, are they as good? No, but they're close. And uh, they're a damn good set of shears, and they're like 10 bucks. And there's a, there's one thing that I... Actually, it's two things that I really require in a set of shears. Obviously, they have to be sharp, cut, and be powerful. That's that's an, you, know, you don't want them. But... Like, additionally, one, they must come apart, and two, they must only come apart when you want them to. So you can't be cutting with them and then they fall apart. And I've had a lot of different ones I've tried that do that. These ones have a screw that holds a lug that holds the other blade on, and you can actually remove that. It's a Phillips screw. You can remove that screw. So if it gets out of adjustment where it's rotated back, where when you are using it in normal motion, it can come undone, you put it back where it belongs, tighten the screw up. Now, the screw's made of carbon steel, so put a little bit of oil on it. It won't rust. That's the only real co uh, complaint you've seen in the reviews. 4.5 stars with tons of reviews, and they get a good grade on fake spots, so they're not fake reviews. Fiskars does manufacture in China, but it is quality shit. It really is. They're big on their quality control. They always have been. And I've got a set of them. And you know what? Before I found Red Anywhere, that was what I used, and they're still there. They've been in my, my kitchen drawer or being used, washed, and put away for about seven years. They're great for uh, for guys that are doing quail. They're great for butchering quail if you don't use the uh, the hands-only method of quail uh, butchering. Really, really great. They'll take out a chicken backbone, but they got to come apart and they got to stay together, right? When they got to come apart when you want them to and stay together when you don't want them to come apart. Here's why: If I'm going to yank the backbone out of a chicken today, and I'm going to cut vegetables that are going to just be lightly sautéed tomorrow, I don't want chicken skank in my in, on my lightly sautéed vegetables, and I don't want it on my vegetables going to salad. I want to be able to clean them fully. And you cannot clean shears. You cannot clean shears. You can freaking not clean the joint of a pair of shears to the point where I'm not worried about dying from salmonella or getting sick from salmonella unless you can take it apart. So check them out. Fisker's 7-inch take-apart shears. But you can always support us how? tspaz.com. T-S-P-A-Z.com. That brings, that brings us to our song of the day. Our song of the day today is by John Lennon because we have five days of John Lennon coming and one of the... Well, to me, one of the most philosophical songwriters of all time that really hit the nail on the head over and over again. 
And this song is called Instant Karma. And if you're not a John Lennon fan and you don't think you've ever heard this song, you probably have. I'd say all but the most young people in this audience, when you actually hear the words and hear the sound and the melody, you'll be like, oh, this, oh okay, I've heard that even if I don't remember it directly. Um, it was a pretty good hit back in 1970 when it came out. So obviously still applies today. Now, Lennon was like... McCartney pretty infatuated with Eastern religions. So I think a lot of people think this song harkens to that kind of karma, like a Buddhist karma or Hindu karma, a belief that your actions will then come back to you in some sort of metaphysical way, which I think there's some validity to. However, that's not what this song about is about. This song is basically, if you're shitty to people, it'll be shitty back to you. That your actions do have consequences, and in many instances, we don't need any religion or any spiritual belief or any energetic universal system to return it. Basically, if I'm shitty to you, you'll be shitty to me. And if I live a life of being shitty to people, there'll be enough people shitty to me that my life will be shitty. But if I live a life of being good to people and excellent to people, there'll be enough people that will reflect that back that my life will be better than it would have been otherwise. I think that's a great message from a great songwriter. And John is one of those guys, you know, there's a song that I always think of when I ever talk about John Lennon or hear about John Lennon or even hear a John Lennon song. And it's not a John Lennon song. It's by a group called Bellamy Brothers. It's called Old Hippie. And he talks, it's about a Vietnam vet trying to cope with the changes in the world. And there's like, I've played it before, and there's a sequel to it called Old Hippie, the sequel that's 10 years later. Um, but in the first one, he talks about John Lennon. And, and the line goes something to the effect of, he thinks of John sometimes, and he has to wonder why. Why, why was this, this musician taken from us in such a stupid heartless manner from a person who he was kind to. And uh, what it makes me think of is, well, what, what might have been? What might, John Lennon had, was one of he'd been through the self-destructive behaviors, he'd really turned his life around and seemed to do it in a way not like people like Ozzy Osbourne where it was a roller coaster, like it was a done deal. You know, when you, when you, when you stay on the straight and narrow for more than six years, you're probably not going back. So he would have had a full life unless some kind of tragic, you know, tragic circumstance of the universe, like a cancer or something had hit him. He probably would still be with us. What kind of music would he have made? What kind of messages would he have brought us? Well, fortunately, he brought us a lot of them. A lot of them have been lost to time. Bringing this one back today. Instant Karma with John Lennon. With that, this has been Jack Spierko with another edition of the Survival Podcast. Help you figure out how to build that limited life. It comes to you for you better get yourself together Pretty soon you're gonna be dead Why in the world are you thinking of Laughing in the face of love What on earth you trying to do It's up to you Yeah, you Some karma's gonna get you
gonna knock you off your feet. Better recognize your brothers. Everyone you meet. Yeah. Uh-huh. 